The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Allergy season is just around the corner, and Brio, the innovative air purifier, can help. Brio quickly removes common allergens, including pollen and pet dander, and deep cleans without filter clogging, so it's more effective than HEPA. Brio's long-life filters save you money, too. Breathe easy this spring with Brio, the advanced air purifier that's ideal for every room in your home. And get 15% off Brio using code IHEART at BrioAirPurifier.com. That's code IHEART at B-R-I-O AirPurifier.com. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head. I'm walking with the dead. A couple of items before we get to the case today. First off, we want to thank you for all of your Pride merch orders. You guys have been loving the new Pride merch. If you haven't checked it out already, go over to our website, themurderdiariespodcast.com and check out the Pride merch. It will be available till July 1st for you to purchase. On that same note, we are so excited about all of the Dear Diary entries we've received so far. It's so much fun to read the stories that you send to us. We actually just recorded our first episode the other day. And when I tell you, you can't wait for this, I mean it. So if you do have a story for us, whether it's true crime or true crime adjacent, be sure to send it into the Murder Diaries pod request at gmail.com. We still don't have a release date, but we did get that recording done, like Natalie said. Now that that's all covered, let me tell you about the case I have for you today. It takes place on the island of Maui. Charlie Scott was going to be a mom, and at five months pregnant, she knew two things to be true. The baby was a boy, and his name would be Joshua. But not everyone was thrilled about the pregnancy, leading to a brutal attack that ended both Charlie and Joshua's lives. This is their story. It's February 10th, 2014, and like all Monday mornings, Kimberlyn Scott expects her 27-year-old daughter, Carly Joanne Scott, known to friends and family as Charlie, to drive down the long driveway to her yellow single-story house past big stretches of grass and grazing cows to drop off her laundry. Acts of service must be Kimberlyn's love language because she sorts, washes, and folds Charlie's clothes every week as a way of helping her daughter out. The two are super close and reside not far from one another. Charlie and her two pit bull mixes, Nala and Zoe, live on Makawao, a small rural community on East Maui. And they're just a few miles down the road from her mom, stepdad, and her four sisters who live in Haiku. The minutes tick by and... Kimberlyn waits and waits, expecting to see Charlie's unique gold forerunner drive up the driveway. 
but it never arrives. Kimberlyn wonders where she could be. You know, it's unusual for Charlie not to follow through with plans. In fact, Kimberlyn emphasizes in the Disappeared documentary that Charlie, quote, never doesn't show up, unquote. She calls Charlie and it goes to voicemail. However, she acknowledges that by the time she called, Charlie would have already been at work and wouldn't have answered her cell phone for personal matters. Or like Kimberlyn says, quote, when Charlie's at work, she's at work, unquote. Signaling that she didn't find the lack of response as unusual as Charlie not showing up. Coworkers describe Charlie as an incredibly hard worker and always the first person at the office. Her desk may have a unicorn stuffed animal on it, but Charlie takes her work life seriously and has a lot on her plate right now. She's working full-time as an administrator at a local art gallery and art center called Hui Noe Ao on Maui while simultaneously earning her cosmetology license with, and I love this, the goal to one day open a salon called Claws and Paws where clients would be free to bring their dogs to their hair appointments to be groomed at the same time. I'm obsessed. This would be my salon, yeah. What Kimberlyn doesn't know is that Charlie never arrives at the gallery for work that morning either. Her coworkers had seen her the day before, which was Sunday, and they weren't aware that she'd be taking the day off. They had to attempt to contact Charlie, sending her text messages, wondering if she's sick or something along those lines. But Charlie never responds. They don't investigate further, but again, this is seen as unusual. Charlie's not one to skirt her responsibilities or fall out of contact, especially during this chapter of her life. Like I mentioned earlier, she's 27 years old and five months pregnant with her ex-boyfriend's baby. And despite the complicated situation, she's absolutely thrilled with the prospect of motherhood. Since the announcement of her pregnancy, loved ones have witnessed a shift in her priorities and this commitment to becoming a good mother and blossoming into who she was meant to be. Her mom, Kimberlyn, reflects on this time of Charlie's life saying, quote, she was really carving out a life for herself, unquote. Kimberlyn, who's still not worried, but hoping to finally get in touch with her daughter, texts Charlie at 3.36 p.m. The message reads, quote, do you want to have an early dinner with me, unquote. Again there's no response. It's now been hours since the first phone calls were made early that morning. And a seed of doubt and worry begins to form in Kimberlyn's stomach. Why hasn't Charlie responded? Then at 9 p.m., Kimberlyn sends a follow-up text. The worry and fear now obvious in her message that reads, quote, where the f*** are you? Unquote. No response. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Nobody else has heard from Charlie either. Kimberlyn's other daughter, who's Charlie's 16-year-old sister, Phaedra, alerts her mom that she hasn't heard from Charlie all day. The two sisters were typically in constant communication with each other most days, but there'd been nothing but radio silence on this particular Monday. 
Phaedra found it to be very weird and out of character for her sister. Kimberlyn says that that's around the time when her mind started to race with thoughts of, quote, everything that could have gone wrong, unquote. Desperate for answers, Kimberlyn and Phaedra speed over to Charlie's gated two-story house a few miles away. They want to find out what's going on, and they're not leaving until they get some answers. The moment they pull into the driveway, they notice that Charlie's forerunner isn't there. But they don't leave just yet. They're determined to get into the house, even though the front door is locked. Circling the dark house, remember, there aren't any lights on. It's after 9 p.m., so they can't see much. But they do notice a window cracked open on the second story. Kimberlyn hoists Phaedra up to the window, and she manages to slide it open wide enough to climb through. Phaedra runs through the dark house to the kitchen door and lets her mom inside. The lights turn on and Zoe, Charlie's tan and white pit bull mix, greets them. She's all alone and restless as if she's been by herself for hours, maybe even overnight. Immediately, Kimberlyn notices that Zoe's food and water bowls are empty and her heart literally sinks. Charlie would never, ever leave her dogs without food and water. Kimberlyn goes as far as calling it a cardinal sin in Charlie's eyes. That's how serious of an offense this was. It's not long before they realize Charlie isn't home. And neither is her other dog, Nala, who had been with her Sunday evening at her sister's house for an impromptu family gathering. The search continues in the household's outdoor bathroom facilities. It's a small building separate from the house with a toilet, sink, and shower tub combo. Phaedra and Kimberlyn successfully break in and they're terrified, but they do it anyway. They're terrified to find Charlie passed out on the floor. Instead, they find nothing. Kimberlyn says that that's the point she went into a quote-unquote full-blown panic. Then Kimberlyn has a moment of clarity and remembers that she convinced Charlie to install the Live360 app on her phone just three days earlier. For those who don't know what Live360 is, it's a GPS tracking app to share your location with your inner circle or anyone that you feel should know where you're at. The entire Scott family is on it, sharing their coordinates with each other. And thank goodness, too. That really sounds like divine timing. Were they able to find her location at all? Yes, and it's really the first break in their search for Charlie. Because according to Live360, at 10.36 p.m. on Sunday, February 9th at KNI Peninsula, marks the last recorded ping from Charlie's phone. Almost 24 hours from this moment in the search. Which brings up so many questions for Charlie's family, like, is this really the last place she was? Maybe her phone battery died, or was it turned off? They don't know, but it's all they have to go off of, and it's not looking good. Because Kanai Peninsula is a remote part of Maui, about 20 to 30 miles from Charlie's home. And it's truly in the middle of nowhere. And there's only one way to get there, Hana Highway. Some call it the most beautiful highway in the world, but looks can be deceiving because it's almost as dangerous as it is beautiful. There's hairpin turns, one-lane bridges, and a ton of blind spots. It's even more difficult to maneuver at night without any streetlights. And I bring that up because if you remember, it, the GPS location app said it was 10.36 p.m. when she was pinged there last. So it would have been pitch black when Charlie was driving out there. And on top of that, there's no reason Charlie should have been out there. None. Zero. Like I said, it's in the middle of nowhere and it was late at night. 
as Kimberlyn racks her brain for any idea of what could have taken Charlie out there, she knows there's only one. Stephen Capobianco, her ex-boyfriend and the unborn baby's father. Even though they broke up more than a year prior to her disappearance, Charlie loved Stephen and would do anything for him. All he had to do was ask. While she was completely head over heels, Stephen was never a great partner to Charlie. He refused to take photos with her or call her his girlfriend, referring to her as his roommate when they lived together. When the couple broke up, they remained friendly and occasionally were intimate with one another. Charlie's friend, Drew, even acknowledges the friends with benefits situation between Charlie and Stephen, saying in one of the documentaries I watched for this episode, quote, They weren't together, but I know they used to meet all the time in secluded places in the middle of the night to hook up, unquote. The last time they hooked up resulted in Charlie's pregnancy, and that made Stephen furious. He now had a new girlfriend from the mainland and just didn't want to be a parent at all. The moment Stephen found out about the pregnancy, he wanted her to terminate it. The two ended up going to Planned Parenthood together to discuss her options. However, Charlie ultimately decided not to follow through with it. She wanted to be a mom, whether or not Stephen would be involved in the baby's life. Charlie looked to her family and group of friends as her support system. And everyone was ready to be the village that she'd need to raise Joshua Aiden, which is what she decided to name the baby once she found out it was a boy. One particular set of friends, a couple, couldn't have children of their own. And Charlie chose them to help her raise the baby. She even had plans to move into their home after the birth. They were all so excited. And Adam Gaines, the husband in the friend relationship, had gone with Charlie to the first ultrasound when they found out it was a boy. And then the other one, when they heard his heartbeat for the first time. Now that we have that essential backstory, I want to bring us back to our timeline on the night that Charlie's mom, Kimberlyn, discovers she's missing. Kimberlyn's mother's intuition is telling her Stephen would be the only person to get Charlie out on Hana Highway in the middle of the night. So when she can't get a hold of Stephen, she knows she's out of options. She has to call the police. She sends Charlie one last desperate text at 10.19 p.m. Quote, I'm about to call the police. Charlie, where are you? Unquote. Once more, there's no response. It's time to get the police involved. In the relentless documentary, Kimberlyn tells Kate Snow what she felt in that moment, saying, quote, it's a big decision that moment when you decide to call the police. You're admitting you need bigger help, unquote. Kimberlyn contacts the Maui Police Department to file a missing persons report stressing the fact that Charlie's five months pregnant and this zero contact situation is completely out of character for her. And by 10.45 p.m., an officer arrives at Kimberlyn's home. They file the paperwork and Kimberlyn addresses her belief that Stephen may be involved. The officer takes it all in, tells them that he'll drive out to Kanai Peninsula and then leaves. The following day, Tuesday, February 11th, Charlie's family drives out to Hana Highway at first light to begin searching on their own. They're not ready to wait at home. In fact, sitting at home waiting for the news is the last thing that Kimberlyn and the rest of Charlie's family wants to do. A multitude of scenarios run through their heads as they drive through the twisting road. Did her car roll off the side? Is she injured or unconscious? Did she pick up a hitchhiker? 
they're considering all possibilities. They stop at every possible spot along the way, yelling Charlie's name, telling her to honk her horn if she can hear them. They even call it Nala's name, hoping she'd make her way to them. But there's never any response. The silence is deafening. They come up empty-handed time and time again and only call it quits once it's too dark to see anything. And later that night, the family and authorities finally make contact with Stephen, who claims this is the first time he's heard about Charlie's disappearance. He tells them that Charlie drove to his house the night before, Sunday, February 9th. He says it was around 8.30 p.m. and explains that she came to his rescue. Apparently, he needed a ride to fetch his lifted forerunner after the battery died on Hana Highway, about three miles from where Charlie's phone last pinged. According to Stephen, it only took a few minutes for the SUV to start running, and Charlie and Nala never got out of her car. Stephen said that Charlie'd followed behind him in case he broke down again. He even saw her headlights before losing sight of her around Ulalina Street. It's a street that's about 10 to 15 minutes from Charlie's house. And at that point, he'd assumed that she'd get home safely and hadn't spoken to her since. The story rubs the family the wrong way, and authorities question the veracity of it. They also note his lack of urgency or worry at the disappearance of the woman carrying his child. Remember, she hasn't been seen for days now. When asked how he felt about impending fatherhood, Stephen told authorities, quote, it's not what I was planning on doing at 24. I'm a 24-year-old male who has a dog and I can barely keep me and my dog alive. The search continues the following day despite the rainy weather and I truly want to emphasize the type of weather that was happening at this point. It was rainy, it was muddy, it was just really messy as searchers, volunteer and police alike were going out into the brush, into the trees to search for Charlie. In fact, This is the day that law enforcement had launched an official search while volunteers armed with knives to defend themselves from wild boar walked through this thick foliage, these steep cliffs, looking for any sign of Charlie. Midway through the day, a lead comes in. Charlie's missing dog, Nala, has been found. Don't worry, she's safe, uninjured, and surprisingly clean, despite that heavy rain and muddy surroundings that I mentioned. It turns out that someone at a marketplace, 13 miles from where Charlie's phone last pinged and 25 miles from where Stephen says he last saw Charlie's headlights in his rearview mirror, found Nala wandering by herself. Once again, this does not sit right with everyone who knows Charlie. They all agree that she would never leave Nala alone. So it brings up the question, if Nala's at the marketplace, then where's Charlie? Other questions crop up with Nala being found. How'd she walk 13 or even 25 miles without getting dirty? Where had she been the last few days to stay so clean? Leading investigators and loved ones alike to speculate that someone Nala knows may have had her. The days keep coming and going, but the search for Charlie doesn't stop. Hundreds of community members volunteer to join forces with family and friends who work in tandem with Maui's fire search and rescue team, combing through the unruly terrain. And then a rumor spreads about the sighting of a vehicle similar to Charlie's. Her stepdad, Johnny Pipkin, investigates the rumor and finds himself in Peahi, 
a dangerous area known for its criminal activity miles from the location of her phone's last ping. And it's there he makes a terrifying discovery. Charlie's forerunner, on its side completely gutted and totally melted. The tires, the doors, and custom grill are nowhere to be seen. But the back license plate matches Charlie's. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that she was inside when it was set on fire, but it's still taken to an impound lot as evidence. Maui Fire Investigator James Blando would later testify that it was burned with an ignitable liquid both inside and outside. This suggested that it had been intentionally set. With this knowledge, fear creeps into the family's minds, but they still hold on to hope. Hope that Charlie will come home soon. Yet another major discovery is made the following day when Charlie's younger sister, Phaedra, and some friends insist on searching the area where Charlie's last phone pinged. It'd been combed through by other searchers, but Phaedra insists on seeing it for herself. She goes even deeper into the remote area off the highway to see the exact location of her sister's phone before it stopped updating. And that's when something shiny catches her eye amongst the greenery on the ground. Turns out, it's the Twilight DVD Charlie kept in her glove box. She's grateful for the discovery, but concerned by the implications. Someone had to have made the decision to walk far from the highway to hide it here. And then she smells something rotten before stumbling onto Charlie's polka dot maternity shirt, the same shirt that she'd worn the last time she was seen alive at her sister's house on Sunday, February 9th. Phaedra then finds Charlie's bra and shredded blood-stained skirt. Investigators later count more than 20 slashes in the abdomen region of the skirt. Phaedra and her friends alert authorities and police take over to conduct an official search of their own, making sure none of the evidence is contaminated and usable if this eventually goes to trial. More of Charlie's belongings from her car are recovered by police, including a bloody blanket covered in maggots, hidden in underbrush and other items by a nearby river. Her phone, wallet, and laptop remain unaccounted for. In fact, her phone is never found, ever. The implications are obvious to Charlie's loved ones, but they have to wait for investigators to process the items for DNA as they continue to search for Charlie's remains. In the meantime, Maui police named Stephen as a person of interest during a press conference. Notice I didn't say suspect. Because with only circumstantial evidence and no body, they don't have much to go off of. Yet, he maintains his innocence while cooperating with authorities, even taking a polygraph test, which he fails. In the meantime, though, he's a free man going about his life while Charlie's family fears for hers. Sources vary on exactly when this next key moment happens, but there's a heartbreaking development in her case. Authorities find conclusive evidence that Charlie has been murdered. A partial jawbone, some fingertips, and chunks of red hair are found scattered in the same area that her clothes were discovered. A forensic anthropologist studies the evidence and finds over 22 cut marks on the jawbone, a clear indication that the offender intended to dispose of Charlie's remains in pieces. Unfortunately, without the entire body, the forensic anthropologist cannot prove cause of death which is different than the manner of death. In this case, the manner of death is clearly homicide. Thus, it is now officially a homicide investigation. 
the news devastates the family. Grief-stricken Kimberlin tells one documentary, quote, they don't even make a word for what I am right now. You can be an orphan, you can be a widow or a widower, but they don't have a word for parents that lose their children, unquote. That quote hits like a ton of bricks. I'm privileged enough not to have to have thought about that before, but it's obviously correct. We don't have a word for parents who have lost a child. I think we need one. You're not wrong, and her family would obviously agree. And at this time, her family is more determined than ever to get justice for Charlie. Moving forward in the investigation, authorities pull Stephen's cell phone records, and they reveal that he was in the area Charlie's remains were found hours before she was reported missing. He made 15 phone calls to her phone from that location, suggesting that he was trying to find it by calling it. Because remember, I mentioned earlier, they never found her cell phone. The records also show that he returned to that location three additional times after her disappearance, but prior to the discovery of her clothing. Stephen Capobianco was arrested in July 2014. He was charged with Charlie's murder and second-degree arson, which is defined as, quote, the person intentionally or knowingly sets fire to or causes to be burned property and knowingly or recklessly damages the property of another without the other's consent in an amount exceeding $1,500, unquote. So we have charges for Charlie's murder, but what about Joshua, the unborn baby? There are no current fetal homicide laws in Hawaii. So Stephen was solely charged with second-degree arson and Charlie's murder. The trial against Stephen took place in 2016 with him pleading not guilty. The prosecution showed the court what was left of Charlie's black skirt, holding it up for all to see the 20 puncture wounds under the waistband. Prosecution went on to say that the knife had been plunged in time and time again, right into Joshua. They said Stephen was the only one with motive, opportunity, and intent. He didn't want to be a dad. Why else was the attack focused on her abdomen? The entire trial lasted for six months, including 59 days of testimony, 76 witnesses, and 450 pieces of evidence presented. It sounds like with all of those witnesses, their testimony, and those 450 pieces of evidence that they had a pretty tight case, despite the fact that most of this would have been circumstantial, right? Because we don't truly have Charlie's body besides her fingertips and her jaw at this point. And that's something that prosecution was worried about. This is a lot of circumstantial evidence, but there's actually even more evidence against Stephen that unfortunately didn't get presented during the trial due to some legal red tape. And we're talking DNA evidence too. I hear DNA. I'm listening. Let me explain. Turns out that this DNA evidence in the form of a single strand of Stephen's hair was found in the pocket of a pair of jeans stained with Charlie's blood but it was never entered as evidence because the results weren't provided to the defense until after the final date to do so. So it all came down to a deadline that wasn't met. When this was brought up to the judge presiding over the trial, he ultimately made the decision not to include it. Charlie's mom, Kimberlyn, was one of the witnesses that spoke during the trial. She spoke about her daughter's deep love for Stephen and how she was constantly defending him and his actions to her family, and how he truly needed love to be understood. Kimberlyn said, quote, I pitied you. 
Then I realized, Stephen, you did have love. You had her. And you know what you did with that love? You stabbed it 27 times. You cut it into pieces. You destroyed it. You destroyed the only love you will ever have. End quote. The trial nearly ended with a hung jury, but the judge urged jurors to push through their deadlock. And after three weeks, they reached a unanimous decision. In December 2016, Stephen was found guilty of second-degree murder and second-degree arson after torching Charlie's car. When asked by the judge if Stephen would like to make a statement, he refused and sat in silence. As Stephen was led away in handcuffs, the court erupted in yells and calls for Stephen to finally tell authorities, tell Charlie's family where she was. Quote, where is she, Stephen? Unquote but they never got an answer. Despite Stephen's silence, it wasn't over yet. The jurors ultimately decided that Stephen qualified for an enhanced penalty of life in prison without parole, an option given to them to consider when crimes are determined to be especially heinous and cruel. Ultimately, Stephen didn't get the enhanced penalty. Then in March of 2017, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole for the murder charge and 10 years for the arson charge, both of which are to be served consecutively. I'm not one for including exceptionally long quotes, but there's this one from the judge presiding over the case that I just feel is necessary to include. He told Stephen, quote, your actions were senseless, cold, calculated, and self-centered. And for that, you must serve an extremely severe penalty under the law and all communities must be protected. The judge continued, as excited as Charlie Scott was about the pregnancy, the defendant was not. The defendant seemed burdened that he would be tied to Charlie for life for the birth of their child. He then added, there is absolutely no question that the murder of a pregnant woman is outrageous and horrific. Just last year in 2021, Stephen and his defense team electronically filed an appeal for his second degree arson and second degree murder convictions claiming three points of error. Number one, insufficient evidence to convict him of the charges. Number two, deprivation of a fair trial due to prosecutorial misconduct. And this is specific to an oversight on the prosecution side during the trial. One of Stephen's recorded interrogations played in court where he discusses having slept with one of Charlie's sisters after his relationship with Charlie ended. However, both the prosecution and defense agreed beforehand not to include this information. In fact, the state's written transcripts redacted that particular exchange between Stephen and the detective, but the recording hadn't been adequately edited and ultimately played in court for the jury to hear. The state went on to acknowledge the error but upheld Stephen's conviction because it determined the, quote, misconduct was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. I'd also like to note that the judge did everything possible to ensure Stephen received a fair trial after that happened, including striking this information from the record and instructing the jurors to not consider that specific information in their deliberations regarding his guilt. And the third reason for Stephen's appeal is listed as, quote, it was error for the circuit court to deny his motion for new trial based on the break in jury deliberations from December 21st, 2016 to December 27th, 2016. Stephen felt that the break around Christmas prejudiced him because it would be impossible for jurors to avoid hearing news reports or public opinion while they were out celebrating the holidays. And he alleged juror misconduct 
because of it. The Hawaiian State Intermediate Court of Appeals rejected the appeal in a 20-something page document where they painstakingly addressed each of the three points, detailing the reasoning for doing so, ruling there was sufficient evidence for jurors to convict Stephen. Stephen and his legal team aren't ready to give up on the appellate process, though. Gerald Johnson, the attorney who represented Stephen in his appeal, told local media outlets that he intends to seek state Supreme Court review of the appeals court decision on behalf of his client. In the meantime, Stephen remains incarcerated at a correctional center in Arizona where he has family. The Scott family has been through hell and back with the loss of Charlie, the brutality of her murder in conjunction with the loss of her baby, and the draining effects of the months-long trial against Stephen. Their fight's far from over, though. A new challenge has presented itself in recent years, stunting their ability to garner some sense of closure. Charlie has never received a proper burial. And it's not for lack of desire. The most recent coverage I could find about this is an article published in Hawaii News Now in February 2020, six years after her murder. The author of said article, Lisa Kubota, reports that while the family has held public memorials honoring their late daughter, Charlie's remains have yet to be released to the family by authorities. Instead, they remain locked away in the Maui Police Department's forensics facility, where they're stored as evidence. And it doesn't look like that'll be changing anytime soon. I guess I'm feeling a little confused and conflicted on this because we already have the trial, a conviction, a sentence. What's going on here? Well, what the author of that article says is the reason for this is a technicality surrounding the local legal definition or lack thereof of what constitutes a body. Remember earlier when I mentioned that Charlie's jawbone was found in the days following her disappearance, along with some of her fingertips and clumps of her red hair? Well, that's it. The rest of Charlie's body has never been found. And while those helped serve as evidence in Stephen's second-degree murder conviction, it isn't enough to legally be considered her body in this specific jurisdiction. Charlie's mom, Kimberlyn, calls out the policy in her own words, saying, quote, who decided that Charlie was not a body that is legally entitled to a burial and is just evidence? She adds, I work with other families of homicide victims, and one of the things I've always been envious of is that goodbye, that moment when they have proof that their child is gone. Kimberlyn backs up her words with action because she's been working with the county's prosecuting attorney and plans to create a bill to change the law so that her daughter's remains can be released. She's working towards redefining what constitutes a body, or at least the legal definition of one. Before we end today's episode, I want to remember Charlie for the beautiful soul she was, the person who was excited for impending motherhood and who couldn't wait to meet her baby Joshua. So I'm going to describe her last evening with her family. She went to her sister's house at 6 p.m. for dinner that Sunday, and she spent quality time with her four sisters, her mom, her stepdad, and Nala, her dog. They watched Disney cartoons together, and all five sisters had piled onto a bed. Her sister, Brooke, remembers one moment in particular. She describes Charlie lying on the bed with her feet out and says, quote, she was talking about how the baby was kicking right then. I touched it for a second, but I don't know. It had like a funny effect on me. She seemed really, really, really happy, unquote. 
A final piece to remember her by is a quote from her friend Adam, who refers to Charlie as, quote, one of the kindest, most generous people that I've ever come across in my life. Through and through a good person, unquote. I think that's such a great place to leave it for this episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on TikTok and Instagram at the Murder Diaries Podcast.com. And don't forget to submit your dear diaries or case submission requests to at the Murder Diaries Pod Request at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us five stars. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.